But the more you learn to suffer well, as I like to say it, the more you suffer well, the more you'll keep moving forward. And that's all it is. I mean, the, the biggest thing you need to succeed at anything in life, whether it be business or anything, is just grit. It's that ability to suffer well. I like to say that the, the single most important skill to master in life is a positive relationship to suffering. That's everything. Advancers, I have a special guest on the podcast, Akshay Nanavade, uh, the author of Fearvana. He's a speaker, Marine Corps veteran, endurance athlete, and a multi-business entrepreneur. And I want to start off by saying when it comes to counterintuitive advice in the realm of mindset and emotional mastery, Fearvana is really a masterpiece. And so thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. And I just want to dive right in and, and ask, you know, out of curiosity, how long did it take you to write the book? It took me about three years. Writing that book was one of the hardest things I've done, to be honest with you. It was, I mean, part of it was research. Part of it was navigating my own demons in the process of writing it. It was very cathartic. Uh, I mean, it was research was a ton. Like I read like hundreds of books uh, to to write that own book. Part of it was procrastination. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, just interviewing people as well. So just all of it. It, it was and it was a voyage for sure, mm -hmm. but I'm glad it seems to be making a difference. It makes it all oh, worthwhile. Absolutely. It's, it's again, one of my top favorite books. And I, I've read hundreds, if not thousands of personal development books. And so that means oh, anything to you. Um, <laughs> oh, that means a lot. I appreciate it. I appreciate and, and it. The, you did touch a little bit on the inspiration. Do you want to kind of deeper dive the inspiration behind it? Um, I know that also ties in kind of to your background as well. So yeah, I'll kind of go into my background of what led me to the concept of Fearvana. So the journey kind of, I would say, really began in high school when I moved, moved to the United States and I got pretty heavily into drugs, into alcohol. I used to cut myself, burn myself. I'm surprised I'm still alive today to be in many ways, but especially back then, I lost two friends to drug addiction and was headed down that path myself. And uh, thankfully, I got out though. I joined the Marines and joining the Marines is where I started to find the beauty in adversity, the beauty in struggle, the beauty in pushing myself. So I looked for new ways to do it. I went mountain climbing, cave diving, ice diving, skydiving. I mean, you name it, kind of nature became my playground. And then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry Marine. So one of my jobs out there was to actually walk in front of vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to blow up me and my friends. So dangerous yes. job yes. you might have yeah, to say the least. And, uh, <laughs> how does one deal with the inner dialogue during how does one get involved in that and, and then how did you really deal with the inner dialogue they're going on with i could potentially get blown up um, almost every day you're on the job right crazy as may sound it wasn't too much of a concern because to be honest with you when i went out there I was in a space where actually I didn't care whether I came back alive or not. Mm. Um, I had lost a friend in the war before that, and I always felt guilty that I didn't go with my friend when we were – there was a friend of mine that we volunteered to go to war together every chance we could. And one summer while I was vacationing in India, he ended up actually going, and he never came back. So I always felt like I should have gone there with him, and it should have been me that died instead of him. So when I finally got my chance to go, I was like, put me there. I'd rather be there than somebody else, you know? And um, so I didn't – I wasn't – it wasn't – and I had also had a high level of risk tolerance because I used to do dangerous things like mountain climbing. I used to free climb rock walls without rope, you know, like 100-foot rock walls without rope. So I had a very high tolerance of navigating fear and risk at this point already. Mm, so the, the familiarity, the relationship with fear has – you already have kind of a foundation to build off of. Honestly. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I did what I had to do, and of course it was <clears> – <throat> It was adversity to deal with. It was challenging. I mean, it was a war zone. So but you did you, you do what you have to do. I mean, I struggled out there. I had my low moments like everybody I'm sure did. But 
and ultimately I ended up by the end of my deployment, I really found peace in, in war, to be honest with you. I found inner peace out there. My, my greatest challenge was actually after coming mm-hmm. home. I struggled with life back here, struggled, I was diagnosed with PTSD, struggled with depression, uh, struggled once again with alcoholism to a very severe degree. And eventually one day after sort of five days of binge drinking pints and pints of vodka, I woke up and actually thought about taking my own life. I pictured myself walking over the kitchen, picking up a knife and taking my own life. And that was a really dark moment for me to actually think, to realize that I would actually think about taking my own life was shocking. So I knew then it's like something had to clearly change, you know? So I began researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality to heal my own brain and get me out of that darkness and ultimately led me on a far deeper quest to figure out how do we all navigate suffering? Because of course I was not the only person who suffered, right? We all suffer in some way. Uh, and by through that process of healing myself and ultimately figuring out how do we na- all navigate suffering, it led me to this idea of fear nirvana. I mean, fear and nirvana, right? Two seemingly contradictory ideas that I had come to learn were very complementary. And fear, or ultimately at the high level, suffering and struggle of any kind can be an access point to bliss and enlightenment. And my whole life experience had taught me that I've struggled through all these things but that's where the beauty lies, not on the other side of the struggle, within the struggle. Oh, I love that. And I definitely want to circle back to all of that. Um, but just to highlight the book and and put it on more, like your background is amazing. Obviously, the trials, the tribulations, the the problems and solutions that you've come up and, and everything that you had to grow into the person to become this author is, is, is noticeable um, from the jump. And so... That's amazing. Also, just to highlight it, the Dalai Lama also endorsed the book, right? So he said, Fearvana inspires us to look beyond our agonizing experiences and find the positive side of our lives. Akshay, how did that come about? What's the story there? <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a true blessing to get a forward from the Dalai Lama. I actually it was a pure cold pitch. I just reached out to him. And uh, at first I reached out to the website and it kind of got me nowhere. So I ended up doing just hours and hours of research and finding a point of contact in his holiness's office. I reached out to him. I shot him a personal video with all my struggle, like my life story, what I've been through that led me to Fearvana, what the goal is of Fearvana, what we want to do. All the profits from the book are going to charity as well. So what we're trying to do with this concept and uh, this one monk connected me to like three other monks later connected to one monk in the office there and after five months of building a relationship with the monk there i ended up getting the forward for the book but the key point i want to really make there too is that it took five months and in those five months every time i didn't hear back i would think to myself oh they probably hate me you know they're ignoring my book they dislike my book i would go through self-doubt i would go through fear i would go through all this stuff right but the thing is you can have those voices in your head but you don't have to listen to them and this is what kind of frustrates me about a lot of the personal development world will say things like eliminate self-doubt conquer fear here's how to be 100 percent confident <laughs> you're not going to have all those things you're going to have self-doubt you're going to have fear and that's okay be with that, but don't let that define you. And it is hard. Of course it's hard, but you can listen to the voices and still take action anyway. So I would continue reaching out, continue reaching out. And eventually he, after five months, he wrote me, this monk wrote me saying, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And after that happened, 
I ended up getting the Ford, which was just the greatest blessing you could imagine, you know, and obviously just a game changer in terms of the marketing for the book as well. Oh, for sure. And what I think also it exemplifies is resourcefulness, which a lot of my listeners are, if not they're entrepreneurs, they're new, new, you know, entrepreneurs are wanting to get into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, how did you gain the skill set of resourcefulness, which will be invaluable for anybody who's starting a business? Yeah, it's I mean, it's, you know, it's still something I struggle with to this day. Every time I pursue a new venture, there's once again the self-doubt there's the fear there's the worry is it going to do well is this thing going to fail and and you go through failures you go through struggles along the way right so the key thing i think with resourcefulness what it is is developing the the ability to smile in the face of the struggle because that's really what the essence of resourcefulness is i don't think i would see that definition anywhere but but that's what it is it's the ability to say okay this thing sucks there's the struggle how am i going to find a way around it how am I going to keep keep moving forward anyway? And then you got to look for answers, right? Find people who are do, doing what you've done and then follow their path. What are they doing? How are they doing it? Take action. Make mistakes along the way because you're not going to learn otherwise. So it's smiling in the face of the struggle. And as long as you do that, and it's obviously far from easy. That's the nature of struggle. But the more you learn to suffer well, as I like to say it, the more you suffer well, the more you'll keep moving forward. And that's all it is. I mean, the the biggest thing you need to succeed at anything in life, whether it be business or anything, is just grit. It's that ability to suffer well. I like to say that the, the single most important skill to master in life is a positive relationship to suffering. That's everything. I think anything is more as as far as advice to others is like you've got to learn how to be self-directed. You've got to learn, you know, how to be resourceful and and get get around the idea that you need resources to just just to start. And we live in an amazing technological age and where it, it has not been less ex, uh, inexpensive uh, than, at, than at any other point in time in human history to mm-hmm. start your new endeavor, right? To write your book, to get mm-hmm. self-published, to mm-hmm. start a podcast. And so it is that fear mindset. I have observed one thing with you that a strong skill, um, you have a really strong skill of self-direction, okay? Which is obviously a, uh, an accelerant of self-education uh, and and what story do you have around that? Like, uh, do you have a moment maybe in your childhood or in, you know, your teens or where you you did something that nobody told you to do, maybe learn something and then k- kind of started gaining that confidence and, and empowerment in mm-hmm. being like, like Firvana in and of itself, right, is one of the the most insightful um I think books that I've I've come across as far as an efficient perception on the on a human minds the the patterning that we have around seeking out problems and and really having the training and, and the very tactical advice on how to start training your brain differently. But you're not mm-hmm. a psychologist. I'm not a trained psychologist. Okay, no, so you didn't go through <laughs> academia, right? Yeah. You're not a psychiatrist, exactly. but no. you you I do have a strong strong skill of self direction. What comes to mind when I ask, like, where did that start? You know, I mean, apparently my family tells me that. I've been like this since I was a kid, just very like independent. Mm-hmm. I would pers- I would I would I'd be willing to fall, you know, no matter what, literally and figuratively, and always. And but even if that doesn't, even if that doesn't come, so let's not even look that far back because okay, yes, I may have I may have had it, but it doesn't matter what you've had in the past. The key to developing that confidence and that self-direction is the willingness to fall. Like you develop confidence by taking risks, falling, and rising back up. So the problem, and I and like even if you look at it from the context of parents, I see a lot of parents doing this. They try to overprotect their kids, right? Don't let them fall, either literally or metaphorically. And the thing is, that's how you become confident. 
You have to fall. You have to struggle. It's only through the struggle that you get confident because you take a risk. You, you go out there. You put yourself in the unknown. And then through that, you develop a greater strength to discover that, oh, I can handle that. I can move through this. I just had somebody tell me that they did the Camino del Real walk in, uh, mm-hmm. in Spain, and they, they were struggling. They, were, they had little, little, some weight issues, and they were really struggling, really struggling. It was one of the hardest things they've ever done. And they had read Fearvana before this, but they said this was the first time they experienced it. And they said it, was, it transformed mm-hmm. her. It transformed her because she realized that by pushing herself beyond her comfort zone, that's when she discovered how much she was capable of doing. But that's the problem because we live in a world that feeds easy, right? We're always looking for the easy way out. Here's how to get six-pack abs in 14 minutes a day. You know, here's the quickest route to making money. Here's the quickest route to this, that, and the other thing. I mean, think about when people pitch products. They're like, oh, it's the easiest (laughs) thing. Like one thing you'll never hear me say is easy. I do not ever, ever promise easy. And that's garbage because if you're looking for easy, you're missing the point. It's not about the result. It's about the struggle. And that's how you become confident. That's how you become self-directed. And you get the will, the grit to keep moving forward no matter what comes in your mm, way. That is beautiful. And as far as and when you're learning things outside of cultural norms, you're going to get a lot of pushback, right? So with that pushback, people will shut down. Um, but what I found in my experience is that that allowed me to then go back into it, learn more, go deeper into that process, bring it back to the community and say, no, I think there's something here. I think there's something, uh, right? Because of the, the idea is that we've been, there's a lot of propaganda, a lot of marketing that wants to play into the, the, the simplicity of things. Oh, seven steps to become a millionaire, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what, as you said right at the start, like a lot of what I teach is very counterintuitive. It goes it goes against the grain. I mean, there's not a lot of people out there preaching suffering. I go against all that nonsense. I talk a lot of trash about this, like, yeah, five steps of to, to magically make a million dollars or seven little things to do this, that, and the other thing, right? Like that's all garbage because mm-hmm. mastery is, is, a, is a campaign. It's a relentless campaign. There's not one hack. Because we also live in a world full of hacks, right? There's Here's a hack to do this, a hack to do that. It's a campaign that's relentless every single day, every single moment, right? So when I say some of these things, generally, see, the thing is what I've noticed actually when I do it is people kind of get it. Like they it, it kind of clicks and maybe because I just speak with this like – passion about it, but also because they kind of understand it and they're starting to see, I mean, the self-help industry is a multi-billion dollar industry and yet most people aren't where they want to be. And in fact, by any measure of success, whether it be wealth, fitness, uh, happiness, things are getting worse and worse Mm -hmm. and worse. So if, I mean, when you're saying something counterintuitive, people are like, oh, okay, that kind of like, if everything else is not working, what he's saying is working. And also another thing that why I think people like, it seems to resonate is because I've Mm -hmm. lived it. It's one thing to research it. It's another thing to have lived it, right? It's it, And, and I've, I've been blessed to say that I have a combination of the two. But that's the one thing. I mean, and this is not just me saying it. My People who have read my book or listened to my talks or whatever say the feedback has been that you have lived this stuff. So we actually hear you in a different way. And so uh, to be honest with you, I haven't gotten too much pushback about it. The only thing is sometimes when I go – say certain things, I always have to offer a caveat. Like when I talk about trauma, for example, I always have to offer a caveat that what I say about trauma is very counterintuitive and even very intense. Yeah. And it's not going to, it, it can send people into dark spaces if you're not careful. So it's not so much, at least in my experience has been pushback, but more that like, I have to uh, validate like why this counterintuitive thing makes sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of co- contextualizing what you're about to say, like pre-framing it. Um, and exactly. then getting the mind ready for yeah. sure. No, I, I definitely get it. And I, exactly. I think one of the other genius things that 
you do, and obviously within your own self-education that you found that nomenclature is a huge, like, is just a huge part of the human experience and words are very powerful, right? You talk about it with the priming effect and, and how people think fear is evil. So, so calling, creating that new word fear Vana is so genius. I just love everything about (laughs) it, but can you talk a, a little bit more about, um, you know, maybe the priming effect, but also one thing that's super fascinating that rumination actually is a, a degradant, like it actually degrades the minds and the neurons and the synapses in our brain when we ruminate on negative, like fear or anxiety. Is that, that's true from the findings of neuroscience as well, right? So the idea with that is that like fear, anxiety, mm-hmm. stress, whatever the word, yep. whatever the emotion, whatever the experience is to actually reframe, the, uh, not even look at it as mm-hmm. negative because there is no bad or good emotion. There is no bad or good experience. There are only emotions and there are only experiences. It's up to us to decide what we do with them. Now, this can be really hard to fathom because somebody's going to hear and say this horrible, horrible experience, right? Like, I mean, we can all think of like horrible experiences, losing somebody you love or whatever, right? Now, it's not, it, it can feel like a bad experience, but it's not. It's an experience. It's a challenging experience because you've obviously like any of these experiences, but they're not bad. They are whatever you make them mean. Like same thing with my emotions. Like fear is a hard emotion mm-hmm. to navigate. Stress is a hard emotion, anxiety guilt, sadness, anger. These are challenging emotions, but they're not negative. The world has framed them as negative. And the challenge is no matter how much you tell people, no matter how much like they, they get it, but like, like I'll, I'll give you an example. Like I've done many talks or many times where I'll talk about how the word fearless is flawed or like fear is not a negative word. And still after that, people come up to me and say, how do I become fearless? And I'm like, no, you're missing the point. It's not, the goal is not to be fearless. The goal is to say, fear is going to show up anyway. The goal is to actually find the gift in that fear, embrace the fear, use the fear because it's going to be there. And it's not a bad emotion. It's just a more challenging emotion than like happiness or calm. And that is what you do in those emotions is what matters though. It's easy to handle life when it's good. It's easy. Everybody can do that. But when life is hard, when life is punching you in the face, when you're going through stress, when you're going through anxiety, what you do then is going to make all the difference between success and failure, whatever success may mean yeah, to you. And, and it's interesting because it is a, a evolutionary process. And one of the best ways to kind of uh, broaden your awareness around that is is notice, I think, I don't remember what book it was, but notice as you're walking down the street, if somebody comes from an alleyway out of your perceptual uh, awareness or your sensor, like your eyesight, just out of nowhere, you have a, a knee-jerk reaction to stop, to freeze. And that that's kind of that kind of enlightened me into that idea that no matter, you cannot control that aspect of fear. Exactly. You can't control what first shows up mm-hmm. in your brain. Like, again, if somebody comes comes to my house right now with a gun, I'm not choosing to feel afraid. I'm going to feel afraid. And neuroscience and spirituality have both shown, like on multiple levels, that we don't control what first shows up in our mm-hmm. brain. It's not, not just in the context of emotions like fear, but everything. I mean, we respond to life based on habitual patterns that have shaped mm-hmm. us. I mean, when I walk to a door, I don't think about walking. I don't think about how to open a door. It's just patterns. Mm-hmm. It, I'm not like thinking about it. I'm not controlling it. It's just there, right? And most of us live our entire lives on auto pilot so it's so we don't control that but what we can control is what we do once it shows up so fear stress and whatever it may be you can control what you do once it shows up just to read an excerpt from the book it says uh, people often feel that the external reality determines their level of suffering but none of these outside forces matter what we do inside our minds the conversation we have with ourselves that is what shapes our reality and our mindset determines how much we suffer you have the power and freedom to choose how you interpret 
the world. But one one of the things that I, I do want to um, ask you about, obviously, second dart syndrome. But before even understanding the the mechanisms in our mind or the patterning, we've got to come to a place where we accept that we don't have control over being fearless or having these negative emotions. Again, let's not even frame it up as negative or positive, just having these emotions, right? Because we're yeah. emotional beings. And so um, I would love for you to dive a little bit into the, the acceptance and the, and the, yeah. the second dart syndrome as well. Sure. Yeah. So th- this is kind of a hard thing for human beings to accept that we we have limited free will. We like to think we're autonomous, powerful beings, right? But our free will is extremely limited. We just respond again on autopilot, right? But the faster you accept that, the faster you can do something about it. And a really great quote that summarizes it is from this book, PD, I mean, from this guy, P.D. Uspensky. He says, man is a machine, but a very peculiar machine. He is a machine when recognizing he is a machine can cease to be a machine, so that's and that quote summarizes the essence of this concept because we are machines. We just respond to the world on autopilot based on everything that shaped us and who we are today. But when we accept that fact, we can say, okay, cool. I am now just going to respond on autopilot. But now what am I going to do with all that stuff? And then we can regain conscious energy. We can regain that sense of free will to choose what we want to do. And that ties into second dart syndrome. So on a neuroscientific level, we don't control what first shows up, right? And the same thing is, is on a spiritual level. So Buddha said we're all stabbed by two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. The second dart is the one that we have power on. So for example, if I stub my toe against a, against a door, my toe hurts, Right. That's the first dart. My toe hurts. Then I'll say things like, oh, why does God hate me? Why do bad things only happen to me? This house is stupid. This door is stupid. This, that, and the other thing, right? That in that conversation we have in our head, that is the second dart. Those are the second darts. And I call it second dart syndrome because it spirals down this second dart. So we all know this, right? Like I've, I've seen people when they'll have fear, they'll beat themselves up for having fear that, oh, I'm, I'm because I'm scared in this situation. It means I'm weak. It means I'm weak. Then if it means I'm weak, then I'll never be able to do this thing I want to do. If that happens, then where will I go? You know, and it's just this downward spiral in our conversation. So you want to notice those second darts. Just pause and notice, okay, I'm feeling this thing that I'm feeling. I'm having this thought that I'm having, but that's not me. We are not our thoughts, our feelings, or experiences. We are the thinker of our thoughts, the feeler of our feelings, and the experiencer of our experiences. What you do in that space between what is and who you choose to be outside of what is that's everything. That space is your destiny. And you need to first become conscious that there is a space. Most people don't even realize that, right? Like we get angry and we just respond. We just respond out of the anger. Like we get, we, we react mm-hmm. to the anger, but if we can notice or oh, that same thing, doubt, and it takes over us, right? But okay, I'm feeling this thing. I'm feeling this thing, but I can choose what to do. There's a space between this thing I'm feeling and what I choose to, who I choose to be outside of that space. That space is everything. And I, I love that. And to, I think those who practice mindfulness can really grasp that. Maybe if, if somebody Absolutely. isn't a, um, you know, an avid meditator or doesn't have really the, the capacity to, I mean, everyone has a capacity, but the ability at the moment to reflect and be reflective rather than um, receptive in that moment. You know, often it's as simple as labeling the emotion. Neuroscience actually shown when you label an emotion, it reduces activity in the emotional brain and increases activity in the, in the parts of the brain related to focus and mm-hmm. awareness. So just pause, say, okay, I'm feeling mm-hmm. self-doubt. I'm feeling self-doubt. I'm feeling fear. And then the next step is ask yourself, what's the meaning that I have created to this, to this environment that's causing this emotion? So, okay, I'm created this meaning. 
That's why it's causing me this and this emotion, right? So asking yourself, what are the meanings that you've created? Not just to the external environment, but to the emotion itself. Because we create meanings not just to the environment, but to our emotions. Like, because I feel fear, I'm weak. Because I feel anxiety, I'm weak, right? Like, because again, the world says we should be fearless or confident. And there's tons of experts saying it, right? All the experts, quote unquote, are saying that. So we think that we shouldn't feel it. And then when we do, we think there's something wrong with us for feeling it. And I've seen this all the time. Like, I worked with somebody once who said, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away so I can quit my job and start my business. I said, that's your problem. You're waiting for the fear to go away because he thought he should be fearless and just be confident as he leaps in action. It's okay. Label the emotion. Ask yourself what meaning you're assigning to these things and then pause and recognize, okay, this is not me. This is just my brain in a pattern. But this is not me. This is not who I am, who I choose to be for myself, for the world. And then you can start creating new meanings. What's the other meaning I want to assign? Oh, I'm feeling this fear because like, for example, if I'm feeling fear of public speaking or fear of sharing my book with the world, which I did, I was, I felt terrified of writing a book on fear. Even though I was writing a book on fear, I felt terrified writing that book. And I would ask myself, why am I afraid? I'm afraid because I care about my message. So the meaning now to my fear is not because I'm weak or I'm pathetic or all this thing. It's because I only feel fear because I care about my message. To me, fear is not the enemy of love as it's often phrased. Fear is an expression of love. When I feel fear about something, it's because I love that thing. Mm. You know, I, if I feel scared about losing somebody, it's because I love that person. If I feel fear about public speaking, it's because I love my message or whatever it may be, right? So creating a new meaning to the experiences, to the emotions, and then taking some action. You always want to channel it into some purposeful action, into something. So you need to have clarity on what your path is. So the emotion can be channeled. Otherwise, it just becomes dormant and it just kind of sits there in this void. And then you can kind of then you want to escape from it. And there's all kinds of ways to escape from it. Right. Watching binge watching TV, drinking, drugs, gambling, whatever, all kinds of ways to escape from it. And so when you have a direction, a path to channel that emotion to, I call it your worthy struggle. I don't like using the word passion because passion often conveys that it's easy and you think that, oh, if I follow my passion, life will be sunshine and rainbows and unicorns, <laughs> yeah. right? And it absolutely, absolutely won't. And passion is not a bad thing. It's good to have passion for your craft, but I don't like saying follow your passion. That's why I call it your worthy struggle. What is that struggle worthy of who you are and who you want to be? Follow that worthy struggle and then you can channel that emotion into the worthy struggle. Oh, that's amazing. The subjects you touch on in the book is adapting your history to serve your present self and your future self, the meaning of your past stories, so they don't become the things that end up holding you back in life, um, which is so yeah. easily seen in regular conversations with people who are telling stories about their past, and they embody that emotional state as if, you know, their and their brain cannot dif differentiate that they are living in the moment or whether it was a past experience. And uh, one of the, the authors that I, or one of the doctors that I, I really love is Dr. Joe Dispenza. And he really talks about how thoughts become emotions, how emotions obviously become prolonged uh, feelings. And when those feelings and emotions are prolonged, it becomes a character trait, which essentially uh, is responsible for uh, your destiny, right? You could pinpoint somebody who has who is just an angry, grumpy, you can ask them, you know, yeah. what, why are you like this? Why are you grumpy? And it's because 30 years prior, you know, they went through a divorce and they were bitter about how it went down and their, their partners, you know, cheated on them or whatever. And they held on to that. And every morning and every day, they're replaying that same story and feeling those same, you know, uh, triggering those same thoughts yeah. and those same emotions. And, and that essentially is the, the entirety of their life of all of their emotional states. They become addicted to those emotional states. And, um, yeah. so 
I love that you were talking about reframing. Uh, I, I, I believe you touched on reframing um, and then also about just, again, changing the story and adapting the history. And so um, what, what inspired that? And obviously that's an efficient perception of, of uh, an aspect of, of Firvana, but um, I'm super curious on your take. So, you know, because, I mean, we all are ultimately, like, there's, again, this thing people who often say you are not your past. You are your past. You're shaped mm-hmm. by your past. But the thing is to recognize that you are your past, but you don't have to be defined by your past. And there's a distinction. So I don't ever like that terminology where people say you are not your mm-hmm. past. You mm-hmm. are. And just accept that you are. But you don't have to be defined by it. And then when you recognize that point, then you can alter it. And so, I, because I was I was trapped in my past, right? Like the survivor's guilt, the, the feeling like I hadn't done enough in the war. I mean, I came back. I wasn't shot. I didn't lose a limb. And I felt guilty mm-hmm. about that like there are people who have suffered so much more than me who have have died out there what right did i have to be alive so i was trapped within these past experiences now the thing is my guilt never went away i just learned to reframe my experience to that guilt so that's why so uh, like i guess to step back let's look at for a second how memory works See, the thing is, when we think about looking at a past event, we think of it like a video camera, like we're looking at this past event. But that's not true. The reality is, every time we think of a past event, we're actually thinking about the last time we thought mm-hmm. about that event. So let's say, like, I asked you what you did uh, yesterday, and then tomorrow I ask you the same thing. You're not thinking about yesterday. You're thinking about today and how you did it yesterday. So the value in recognizing this is that every time you actually think about a memory, you can reframe the neuronal structure of that memory, and this is the problem with many, many therapies is that we keep sending a person into the past from a very disempowered mm. space. And so you're just you're just attaching more negativity, more, more, more pain to that memory. Instead, if you let's say do something like do something that increases dopamine in your brain, go for a run, go exercise, and then step into that past, you're now reframing the neuronal structure of that memory. So you're, every time you think about the past, you're thinking about the last time you thought about it. And, that, and there's value in that. And there's also something scary in that because it means your past is not real at all. It's a complete lie. It's manufactured. And there's plenty of research that has shown how we completely change things about our past. Our memory is like just a, a mess. We can't remember m- much of it. But the value in that is you can get to m- make it whatever you want. And it, again, you're not changing clear events, but you can change meanings to those events as well. So you can change your your emotional attachment to the event and change the meaning to the event. Meanings are everything, the meanings we assign to things. Because again, life has no inherent meaning, right? There's no bad or good emotions or bad or good experiences. There's just things. And then it's the meanings we assign to those things that shape everything. The meanings we assign to experiences as well as our emotions. Which is so important along this self-reflective, um, self-discovery journey uh, to understand the meanings that we, we've we put behind certain things, maybe the same things that are, that are holding us back day to day. Um, and as far as like self-actualization goes, I do believe to be fully self-actualized, like you've got to get to a place where you're fully self-expressed and you're completely authentic, mm. impeccable with your word, things of that nature. And you, you can't get to that place. Uh, I, don't, I don't say anything's impossible, but without facing your demons or the devils, right? And so, without so a I, doubt. I would love to dive in deeper with there because uh, this kind of wraps into everything that we've already been talking about. But um, you have, you just, you love getting into those processes. Yeah, confronting your demons is something that we, we, uh, we avoid because it's hard. It's scary. It's uh, it's obviously inherently challenging to go into your demons and to face them. But you cannot, like Carl Jung puts it beautifully, he says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And he also adds that, you know, no matter how absurd people do, will do anything to avoid confronting their pain. And that's the value, though, because we all have some of those demons. 
And if you make, and the thing is, they're running your mind. They're trapped in your subconscious. Mm -hmm. Carl Jung also says beautifully, until you make the subconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So you have to make that unconscious conscious. You have to go into your past. I mean, go into your demons, confront those demons, make them, make them conscious. That's the same thing with my demons about my guilt. I kept running away from the guilt, right? I kept running away from that pain because I just didn't want to face it. So I ran away. I drank. I did whatever it took. And even sometimes I ran away doing positive things. Like I spent a month dragging a 190 pound sled for 350 miles across the world's second largest ice cap in like minus 40 degrees, right? Like that's a positive thing in the sense that people admire yes. it. They have invited yes. me to speak about it. But the truth be told is I did this amazing years after the war truth be told is when i look at myself from a place of self-awareness i was still doing that to run away i was doing I, I wanted to go to intense environments to run away from myself to run away from my pain you know and i remember still out there like actually like it, it just being in the stillness of that i remember tearing up just randomly thinking about my friend uh who, who, who died in the war it just it just kind of hit me because because those demons were still there and i had to face that so if you've been if you've gone through some trauma in the past it's going to be hard but engage it if you've gone through some struggles, whatever it may be, face it, sit with it, run. I mean, you got to be still too. This is another thing. Like you can only engage your demons when you're still. And we live in a world that is so bad at stillness <laughs> because we're on our phones, we're on computers, we're watching TV, we're doing something or the other to avoid being just still with ourselves. And when you sit still with yourself, stuff will show up. And when that stuff shows up, be with it, confront it as challenging, as painful as it is, just sit with it to see where it takes you. And it'll take you to some place dark, but on the other side of that darkness will be something beautiful. Yeah, and if you're not just giving this advice through uh, past experiences, you're living it day to day. And uh, I know recently you just went on a seven-day uh, isolated darkness retreat. What what was the inspiration there? Now, I don't even have to ask. I know the inspiration there, obviously. Um, but what what was the insight that you gained? What did you learn? Yeah, I would love to hear about that experience. Yeah. So I spent, I mean, to be honest, even, even the inspiration is because I was still struggling with stillness to a certain degree. I mean, I, you know, I had done a lot of things and I would meditated and all that, but I realized that I, I hadn't really confronted stillness because I was afraid of it myself. And so uh, it, it is scary. Stillness is really, really scary. And so I want, so me being me, I'm going to confront it in the most extreme and intense way possible. <laughs> and so I it. decided to go. go all it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why not, right? So spent seven days in pitch darkness, isolation, and silence, just sitting in a dark room for seven full days. And obviously, it was challenging. It was brutal. It was hard. But it, interestingly enough, for me in the darkness, not a lot of my demons came up because I think I'd already faced a lot of my demons. For me, a lot of what came up was actually feelings of joy and feelings that I'm allowed to be happy because I struggled with being happy. I actually always felt guilty about being happy. Like there's too many other people in pain. There's too many people suffering in the world that I have no right to be happy and uh, in the darkness i actually found more meaning in being happy in in the like that i'm allowed to just to be happy in life and to and to channel that happiness into something greater than myself i mean the key word that ultimately was everything in the darkness was self-transcendence everything i believe is about self-transcendence transcending the self in service of not just the self but in service of something greater than the self you know, but by, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that happened in the seven days, but by far the most profound experience was coming back into the light for the first time after seven wow. days, by far. I mean, coming back into the light was mind blowing. I remember just sitting there looking at and just thinking that I want to look at the world every day through those eyes, you know, and because, and I also remember feeling grateful for all the pain I've ever experienced because I remember thinking that you cannot see the light this way unless you've been in the dark. 
And obviously in that case, it was in a literal way, but I mean yeah. that in a, in a, in a figurative yeah. way as well, that you cannot really see the light in a way unless you've been in the dark. So that's why, that's why, I mean, many of us have already been in it because life handed to us, but if you haven't seek it out, like there's so much value in seeking out pain because on that, on that pain, in that darkness, when you confront it, you'll find so much beauty in the light and you cannot ever see the light unless you've been in the dark. That is amazing. The only reference point I really have to try to make sense of what it would be like in my own experience is, uh, doing, uh, holotropic, um, or holotropic breath work, which is, you know, two to three hours of intense, deep breathing and, and just really stirring up the unconscious uh, processes, past emotional traumas and bringing them to surface and uh, allowing yourself to process those emotions. Um, but after those instances of, of breath work, when you do open your eyes and you kind of come back to perceptual or just conscious awareness, it's like everything is just the vibrancy is just, you know, a few notches higher than what you're used to. It is like this yeah. is everything is so you could stare at a tree for an hour and just be in awe of the beauty and just how amazing things are. And so I, I would love I would love to try that in the future. Absolutely. I mean, just knowing that somebody's done it, it's in my own mind. I'm like, I can do it, too. And so. It's totally worth it. And for a lot of people, actually, if I spoke to the per person who run the darkness retreat, for a lot of people, it brought up trauma. It brought up a lot of darkness. She told me that for, I mean, the, she was telling me that for the probably for the reason for you is because you've engaged a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people like they had, because the beauty in the darkness is the darkness is his own teacher. No matter what seminar you go to or all the other kind of work, you're being directed by some methodology. Mm -hmm. In the darkness, there is no methodology. There's just you and the, and it's the nothingness that's a value. And also one quick point, and then, uh, sorry, I, I think I cut, cut off the question, but uh, the value in going into the darkness versus let's say doing a silent retreat. I was thinking about doing like one of those Vipassana silent retreats or a lot more common is that in the darkness, you're shutting off one of the primary ways with you, which you engage with the world, right? Your visual sense. So now I, I don't, I no longer have the, my, my visual sense. I'm not consciously attaching myself to things and having these conscious conversations in response to external stimuli. The darkness forces you to go within. And I, I like to say so that you're, you're kind of darkness forces you to go within your soul. And that's a really powerful and intense experience. That is, that is, it's fascinating. And as far as the inner, the inner chatter, um, how, how was that in that space of darkness? Did you, yeah. did you notice the external stimuli are, are the stimuli to invoke those kind of, you know, the memories, the, uh, whatever processes that we have that really are yeah. distractions to what's going on inwardly, you know, our inner, our okay. inner peace. What, um, yeah. what was your experience there with the, the inner chatter, the mind chatter? There was uh so I think, you know, there's ultimately two kinds of meditation. There's the meditation where you sit still and you're really working on silencing the mind as it shows up. The other is where you let the mind go where it goes, yes. where it goes. So it was a constant practice of those two. So I actually had a journal in the dark and I was journaling and I would just fervently write like the stuff that came up was very very profound and powerful and i'm not saying that as a sort of brag about me it was almost like it came to me right like it's not me it just kind of came to me so part of it was just like writing and journaling other parts of it was just sitting still and meditating and for i mean for god knows how long for must have been hours right for just sitting still and meditating other parts you're literally just sitting there being like 
man, this sucks. I'm just sitting here in the dark and I got a long time left. (laughs) (laughs) And also, Sometimes you're just literally having that like nonsensical talk, but you just go through this journey and it's really wild. You actually start seeing lights in the dark. Uh, It's a surreal experience. You see lights that are as real as anything you could possibly imagine. And it's, I mean, it's a common phenomenon. Every single person who goes into these darkness retreats see it. So uh, it's a very common phenomenon. And these lights can vary depending on the person, uh, like what they like so how is this a, is this like a neurological phenomena or is this like a another dimension like you are just you're you're more in tune with your surroundings is like interdimensional like what would you say that is from your own experience for me this is where like because if you you know you read my book my everything everything for me for me is very like scientific studying yes. the neuroscience yes. studying the psychology <laughs> And for me, these are the experiences that transcend reason and rationality. And there's beauty in that. There's beauty. And I don't even, I mean, maybe there's a neuroscientific reason for it, but I haven't bothered looking because it doesn't really matter to me. For me, it, it, I mean, I know I'm in dark, right? Like I know I'm in a pitch darkness, but there were some days where it was so bright. I felt like I needed an eye mask to sleep. I mean, just think about that. You're in pitch dark and it felt so bright that I felt like I, like I, I needed wow. an eye mask. And there were moments where I was actually touching my eyelid. I was touching my eyelid to see if my eyes were open or not. I couldn't tell because there was a, there was, there was a moment where you feel one with your, with, it, it's kind of a unique paradoxical experience because in a sense you're isolated and alone, but in a sense you feel more connected than ever before because the darkness is, it's nothing, but it's also all consuming, mm-hmm. right? It's all consuming. I mean, you become one with the dark. So it's this really surreal and paradoxical experience where you get to experience, I mean, everybody will have their own journey but uh it was deeply profound and that to me is the value that to to combine these to combine reason and rationality with that that transcends reason and rationality call it the spiritual call it faith call it whatever you want to call it but uh i think there's value in tying both of those you know science and spirituality can coexist they don't have to be distinct Mm. and so it was very powerful for me to experience things that really transcended reason Mm. and one of the things that you put so poetically is the duality of 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 being okay with all of the spectrum of emotions, being okay with fear and happiness, and then also tying in how they they can coexist. Now, the paradox of duality, like this paradox, this this concept, um, to eventually get you to a place where self transcendence then becomes something that is attainable for for beings. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if it's one of those things like. Um, you know, Abraham Maslow self-actualization. Does one ever become fully self-actualized? Does one ever fully self-transcend, right? Um, mm-hmm. But that is a, a definitely like from my own experiences is, is is a concept that when you can grasp really allows you to take a step back and observe better yeah. um, and observe your emotional state, observe your mental state, yeah. observe your physical state. Um, rather than judge it or be, you know, antagonizing towards yourself. Um, And so with that being said, where did that come from for you? You know, I think that it was all of it. Yeah, it was all of studying a lot. Like I love Carl Jung, love Viktor Frankl. In fact, tying that into self-transcendence and self-actualization, Viktor Frankl says self-actualization is a side effect of self-transcendence. 
And that's a deeply powerful quote to me that self-actualization is a side effect of self-transcendence. And I believe too that everything, like when I read my darkness journal, everything is about transcendence. It's about self-transcendence. And that that's the most powerful thing in, in life because when you transcend the self, that's how you separate yourself from your emotions and realize your emotions don't define you. You transcend yourself in service of, again, not just something greater than yourself. And I want to be clear on that. like Because often when I say self-transcendence, it means people kind of think that I'm referring to serving others. And yes, that is part of it, but it's also transcending yourself in service of yourself, in service of your higher self, because like you, you transcend your own emotions, your own thoughts to keep moving forward on your mission, right? To keep, to get out of your own way. Cause that's all, that's all we got to do is get I out of our that. own way. I mean, ultimately we all have the same, like 24 hours a day. We have different, yes, stuff around us, different resources we come with, but the only thing that separates us ultimately, again, separate from real environmental factors. Some people are born in war zones and stuff like that. Like that, that's, Yes, that's a whole different thing. But if we're, you know, in in the luxury of having freedoms to uh, where we're not having to worry about our life on a daily uh, daily uh, occurrence, is that it's our mindset on how we approach things. And when we transcend ourselves, we can actually do service to ourselves. And the best way to practice self transcendence that I have come to learn is suffering. Mm -hmm. I believe suffering is the best training ground for self transcendence. This is why I'm an ultra runner. When I run ultras, there are moments where I'm in horrible, horrible pain. Just recently, I ran a 72 mile run. And at mile 48, I was in a soul like just the most worst pain ever just sitting there. And it was soul crushing. I just felt so depressed. My soul was crushed. I wanted, I hated life. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was just, it was miserable. But that moment to get up from that moment and keep moving forward for 24 more miles, that's self-transcendence. And so when you suffer, you are forced to transcend yourself It transcend the pain to keep moving forward. And that's why, I mean, that's why, like, I mean, suffering is everything. You hear me talk about a lot. That's the essence of fearvana is find, engage fear, engage struggle, engage stress. It's not the enemy. This world that tells us to like, you know, navigate stress, eliminate stress is garbage. I mean, yes, you need to manage stress with recovery. Of course, it's not about 24 seven stress. You need recovery as well, but engage it, face it, and it'll teach you how to transcend yourself. When you go through it, I mean, and, and, and we all have different levels, right? If you're just starting out, obviously you're not going to be able to run 72 miles, go for one mile, go for a half a mile, whatever it is, but push yourself into a moment where you will want to quit, where one part of you will want to fight and the other will want to quit. When you engage that moment, that moment will be your training ground for self-transcendence. Mm. And self-transcendence is everything. Self-transcendence is, is, is life. It's everything. I love that. And it, I, I love the idea that now research, science, um, current science and and past, you know, really archaic wisdom, um, all point to a huge tool in your tool belt along this journey. Uh, meta awareness is what what I what I talk about yes. a lot is the awareness of awareness. That. And I think in those self transcendent states, you're really allowed to you're able to detach yourself from that moment and and then like again assess the situation why am i feeling like this i can do it i can keep going and it's it's phenomenal obviously from all of the stories in in the world and all of the books that exist of these stories and the limitations that humans have uh broken through right this this concept that that uh human beings are are machines and adaptation machines and and our our realities whatever we want to accomplish is is nearly limitless and that's that's amazing and and as far as meta awareness goes 
Um, what what's your experience with meta awareness? Uh, a lot of older, you know, uh, Indian yogis called it uh, uh, observer's awareness as well. Um, how do you train that um, to become better? And I, I think really to the reason I'm asking is to to give those individuals who don't necessarily yeah. have a lot of experience in in the psychology behind it or in the the um, phil- not the philosophical but the the meditation aspect of it as well. Just giving them a a, a really a focal point that they can expand there from um, as far. A very sorry, yeah, very simple exercises. Next time you're standing in the line, just pause and ask yourself, what am I thinking? What's the thought? What's the thought happening here, right? Like go get getting aware of what's happening, that awareness. I, firstly, I love that you said meta-awareness. I, I, I rarely hear people talking about meta-awareness and I, I had a huge smile on my face when you said meta-awareness. Meta, yeah, going meta. In fact, I have notes that say relentlessly think in the meta. Meta is essentially, for those who might not know, meta is rising above the thing to think about mm-hmm. the thing. So meta-awareness, like you said, is rising above awareness to have awareness of awareness. Like a meta-learning would be learning mm-hmm. how to learn. So getting awareness of your awareness, just pause and think, what am I thinking? What's the thought? What's the thought about the thought, right? That that's meta awareness, and uh, and and judge and just notice, just pause and notice. Like one thing I like to do, and, and if if anybody had a camera following me around, I'd look like a crazy <laughs> person. I talk I talk out loud to myself oh, all the time. I'm walking around my so house and I'm talking. That loud. breeds so much clarity. <laughs> it's so much. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm talking out loud. Okay, what's going on with you right now? Why? When I'm driving, I'm talking out loud to myself. You know, so I'm constantly becoming, because here's the thing. Our thoughts, our, our mind is a state of chaos. It's a chaotic consciousness in here. So if you talk out loud, you're silencing the chaos into one directed thought, right? Like one thing, because you're, you're, it's the thing you're saying. And it becomes a feedback loop because you're hearing yourself say that thing. So, I mean, there are times, don't get me wrong, there are times that there's value to be just silent and just let the mind go where it goes. Uh, but there are other times, like more often than not, especially in, in a nature when we're so, like the chaos consumes us, start talking out loud. See what's happening within yourself. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? And acknowledge that, the, that like, what am I thinking about that thing? Like, the, what are the second darts about that thing? Okay, I'm feeling fear and I'm thinking this about that fear. Oh, okay. That thought is about that, right? Like, and just going and, and going meta about yourself, and and keep noticing. And just by noticing, you will train yourself to master that space. And again, when I said that space is destiny, like there's uh, Victor Frankl puts it beautifully. He says between stimulus and in response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. That space between stimulus and space, and, and between sp- stimulus and response, there is a space. That space is literally, if there's like, is the the most important thing you can master. And this is why it comes back again to suffering. Suffering trains you in that space because the beautiful thing about pain and suffering is it's all consuming. Like when yes. you're in pain, this is why I love long distance running in the gym. It's like it, you don't have the luxury to think about this, that, and the other thing. The pain just consumes your soul, you know. And and there's beauty in that because then, like, it gives you so much focus. It gives you so much clarity and you get to decide can i rise above this pain for this moment can i rise above this pain and when you do rise above that pain you're training yourself in that self-transcendence you're training yourself into space you can say look i am this pain i mean this pain is happening but i will not let this pain define me like a mantra that actually came to me while i run so hopefully this mantra you can repeat yourself and it'll help is be with what is but do not become what is so when i was running i was doing on a long run and i was in horrible pain i was like be with this pain, but do not let that pain become you. 
You know, be with what is, but do not become what is. And so just let that pain be there, but I'm not going to let this pain define me. That is amazing. There's nothing, that was the best, you know, cap to this uh, podcast episode. I mean, it was amazing. Um, I do want to wrap it up with one last question for you, though, if that's okay. Um, I am super curious on where your curiosity is right now. What is a subject, something maybe that you're deep diving or uh, something that's even counterculture, like something that's like, um, not you know, not very nuanced. Like maybe taboo. Like I, w- mm-hmm. I would love to learn what's kind of it's inspiring your curiosity at this moment. Like, what are you learning? Yeah, one thing that I'm continuing to practice and get uh, working on getting better and better at is lucid dreaming. Oh, okay. Yeah, the so lucid dreaming is the idea of becoming conscious in your mm-hmm. dream state. And, uh, and there's the value in that is that you're essentially consciously engaging the subconscious. And, uh, and that's a beautiful, it's a powerful, powerful exercise. See, most of us, again, are, we are, we're, we're our dreams just, we happen or how we, our dreams happen. But if you imagine when you become conscious in that dreams, then you can control the experience of that dream. And you can actually learn, like I've had some amazing, happy to share if we, mm-hmm. if we have time, but some amazing lucid dream experiences that have taught me so much about uh myself so i'm not by no means a master at it but i'm continuing to train in it too i want to get to the point where i can go lucid at will yeah so i'll i'll share one one particular really cool lucid dream i had um so it, it was actually a second it was a second dream to a first dream so the first dream i won't go into the de- too mm-hmm. much detail but i was swimming in the ocean and i kind of woke up so the second so that's kind of the, the second dream is where it gets really deep so i was having this dream and uh, and so, like and and this in the dream this person was chasing me and I felt this fear, like palpable fear. I remember like actually like, you know, like fear in my dream. And suddenly I became lucid. I became conscious in the dream and realized, okay, I get to control this situation. So I stopped running away from this person. And this is the violent part I don't know where this came from. But I actually grabbed his heart, ripped it out of his body <laughs> and, and stuffed it into his oh mouth. Right. Gosh. So that's where it yeah. started. And, uh, <laughs> I love it. That, that, that was that was the violent part. But then this is when it gets really profound. So then I flew out of the building. One of the things that a lot of lucid dreamers do is fly. I flew out of the building and flew over the ocean. And then I dove into the ocean and I kept swimming deeper and deeper and deeper looking for something. Because in this last dream, right, I was looking and I couldn't and I couldn't find it. So I looked looking for something, looking for something. And then I paused at the, you know, in those floating in the ocean. I was like, maybe the answer is that there's nothing to look for. And I was like, maybe, no, that's not satisfied. I'm going to go deeper. And I go deeper and deeper and deeper. And finally, I find this treasure chest. And it has a purple aura around it. And from my understanding, purple purple apparently has a quite a spiritual uh, uh, meaning. So this treasure chest has this purple aura around it. So I go to the bottom. I'm trying to open it up. I open it up, and it's a treasure chest, right? And what I find inside is a mirror. Oh, my God. And the mirror has a purple aura. And I kid you not, this was a, a powerful. So I take the mirror, go to the top of the ocean, and I'm sitting there because, again, it's a lucid dream, and it's a dream. And this is the cool thing about a dream because you can do all kinds of crazy stuff. You can fly. You can sit on the ocean bed. So I'm sitting there on the ocean cross-legged looking into this purple mirror and just seeing and, and trying to understand like what's what you know seeing myself and then i then i remember this huge storm like almost like a per the, from the movie perfect yeah. storm starts com- to, coming towards me and hitting me and once again i get afraid and then i just sit and i said i look in the mirror and i realize that's all i need right there that's all i need right there you know and it was a deeply powerful experience because see you can con- consciously know okay all you need is the power within right like that's cool you can consciously say it, but it's another thing to viscerally mm-hmm. feel it to viscerally feel it and you you feel it on a visceral level and when you really practice to the point i mean there's masters when there's a great book called the tibetan uh, Tibetan yogas of dream and sleep, where the masters at it can go lucid at will. So let's say they have, they, and he talks about they have some problem. 
They just go into a lucid dream state and they'll find a new way to approach that problem because you're accessing different states of the mind. Like, you know how this, like there's all kinds of stuff happening in your mind that you're not tapping mm -hmm. into because it's just there, it's buried in your consciousness, some, some memory, something, something or the other. But when you can go lucid, you can open up doorways to those states and like what you can find can be amazing. You're talking about <laughs> creativity on on steroids type of thing like exactly. and at exactly. will it's that exactly. is amazing a lot like they say salvador dali was a lucid dreamer and a lot of his paintings came from there they say a lot of very creative people uh, are are uh, you know you lucid dreamers and access the lucid dream state to explore their creativity that's amazing i'm gonna have to deep dive that for sure that sounds super fascinating um, and, and how have, yeah. have you seen have you seen any uh, benefits so far to your just day-to-day with kind of so actually the real value in lucid dreaming is not just what happens at night it's actually becoming in order to go lucid in your dream state at night you have to practice becoming more lucid during the day the thing is we're not lucid during the day again like we go on autopilot right like after this let's say i'm just walking around but becoming lucid during the day is pausing to say okay i'm awake right now in this in this mm -hmm. experience i'm lucid to this experience and the more you train in that the more you actually then can become lucid at night so you, so it's cool because like, no matter where I go, like when I get in the car, the first thing I do, it's, it's a trigger. So I put my finger into my palm and I say, am I dreaming? I'll say, am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? And the value, the, why you do this, why you, why you can say, and you can do anything. You can come up with any, this is just one version, but why I do this is because when you actually get into a dream state and I've had this happen twice, the finger will go straight through the palm. And then you, so it becomes a trigger to keep asking yourself, am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? And then you're actually training your brain. You want to make it habitual. So that way sometime in your dream state, you, when you're sleeping, you will actually do this. And this has happened to me twice where I did that. I go, am I dreaming? And the finger goes straight through the palm. And then, you know, you're actually like in a night, in a dream, you know, and then you, and then suddenly you become lucid to that dream. And then you get to do what you want in that dream. Wow. So it's constantly becoming lucid. And I actually, so when I drive, and if I'm driving or I'm walking around the house, I'll say, okay. I'm awakened to the dreamlike nature of this reality. Basically saying that this reality is, is a something I'm creating in my mind, right? Like I'm manifesting this experience of this moment. I'm awakened to this dream. I'm awakened to this dream. I'm awakened to this dream and repeating it. So becoming more lucid in your awake state, I mean, that's a game changer because you can change your experience of life. Let's say you have something that has a has a has a you know has has affected you like for example this house is hard for me to sometimes it was hard for me sometimes being because my ex-wife was mm. here and i struggle with it because it reminded me of my ex-wife but be by becoming lucid i could say that oh this house is just four walls everything else is my relationship to it so now i became lucid okay and it's not like it went away instantly but i'm becoming lucid to it and just noticing it Okay, I'm noticing how my brain is responding to this. I'm noticing the dream I'm creating in response to this house. Let me create a new dream. Wow, and that can be so profound, all of that. Oh, game changer, absolute game changer, because, I mean, you're creating your experience of reality yeah, at will. <laughs> what could be more powerful than that, right? <laughs> so as a creator, yeah. uh, I know you, you've uh, authored Firvana. Is there another book in the works? Do you plan on uh, releasing another one? Eventually, writing a book was brutally hard for me. In fact, one of the things I've been thinking about doing for my next book is actually going into the darkness and just being there for like a month and writing a book in there. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to do this anytime soon, but that's the that's an idea because what came to me in the darkness in the in, like in my in the journal that I have in the darkness. I mean, it wasn't even like again. I'm not even saying it. It was like 
I'm not saying this in a bragging way, but what I read in that journal was deeply, deeply profound. It was incredibly powerful. Uh, and so to me, it was like, but obviously like a book like that is not going to be research based. It's just pure going to be a stream of consciousness in a way. Right. Uh, uh cause you can't really research in the dark, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> but that that's that's been a vision because I think when I when I want to go a little further in terms of my own personal evolution, because uh, because I want to get to the point where I feel like I have enough um, enough evolution for people to say I want to listen to this guy. And I feel like I already have, you know, a good bit, but I want I, I feel like there's more to be had mm. that then. So that way, when that evolution, when I combine all the experiences of that evolution into something, it's worth reading mm-hmm. you know yeah. uh, and so the darkness journal was very profound uh, and uh, and and that so that that was the idea not going to happen like tomorrow or anytime in the near future but eventually that's a possibility yeah, I, well, I, i'll be first in line to read it so you have at least one person who's gonna buy, <laughs> buy the book but no, I, I think that that insight is really profound as well i i know research and science is so important but also the more you learn, and I'm sure you've come across this, it's like there is so much more to learn and how much do we even exactly. know accumulatively? Exactly. And so some of the things that we maybe touched on could be seen as maybe ethereal, but I definitely think that there are insights and things that we will um, come up yeah. with that have not been, you know, not been researched. There's no double blind study behind it, but that does nonetheless. Exactly. Will bring and so that's much the value profound. though, because yeah. That, I mean, sorry to cut you up, but that, like just to, because I think what you said is, is really, really important. Like the true measure of the human will, the true measure of the human uh, experience can never be measured in a lab. I mean, there's all this research on, on all kinds of stuff, right, on the brain. And believe me, I'm all about it. Like I research a lot. But the true true measure of the limitlessness of the human potential can never be measured in a lab. And people are pushing the boundaries of the potential in every context all the all friggin' the time. time, right? So we we have like we can we can do so much more than we ever think, and we can never know that in a lab. That's why like you look anybody listen you can hear me in a podcast you can read my book read any book but the only way you're going to get the lessons is in the doing is when you get out there when you push yourself when you suffer when you experience the extremes uh and that's where the that's that's where the the that's what that's the real lab of no, life absolutely i definitely agree and uh, just to just to kind of close out the, the episode, I do want to uh, or tell my listeners, look, we've been talking uh, of maybe more higher concepts. And at the end, we talked about lucid dreaming, but uh, don't disregard. There's a, a tremendous amount of research that went into this book and also tactical advice training in this book almost after every chapter or, you know, three times in, in one chapter. Like it's amazing. And it's really, really useful things that will really transform um, not just help you, but really transform your thought processes, your relationship with suffering, your relationship with these buzzwords around fear. I mean, I'm a huge advocate for it. I have a tattoo um, in Latin called Disis Pati. And I, I got that uh, 12 years ago or 10 years ago. And and um, it means literally learn to suffer. And so I, I have had a familiar you know, relationship with that idea of, you know, behind all of these these things that we fear are our greatest life. And um, I just want to, you know, ask where can people find you? You can find me at fearvana.com. It's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A, fearvana.com. The book is on Amazon as well and Kindle, a hard copy and uh, an audible. And all the profits from the book go to charity. So, uh, yeah, fearvana. That's amazing. Hold on, That's hold on. Right. They all go to charity? 
Yeah, all the profits from the book are going to worthy causes. So we've supported uh, one of the causes we just recently supported is this young girls who are victims of sex trafficking in India. We've supported former child soldiers in West Africa, helped building a school in Liberia. So many worthy and notable causes. That is amazing. And I'm blessed, <laughs> blessed and privileged to be a part wow. of. Uh, that's amazing. And that, that's uh, a subject near and dear to my heart. I train at a gym, CrossFit, O-U-R, Operation Underground Railroad. Oh, yeah, of course. No, awesome. Yeah. awesome. So, yeah. yeah, the founder of that, yeah. he definitely is on a mission as well. Awesome. So it, it seemed like um, this was not by happenstance. And <laughs> Advancers, I hope you got a ton of value from this this episode. And I thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast. So many gold nuggets along this um, this episode, but I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, my friend. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. If I brought you any value today, please subscribe for notifications of next week's episode. I would truly appreciate it. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Connect to our community on social media. We're building a tribe of self-actualized grow-getters, those that implement the practice of lifelong learning, understanding it will catalyze self-actualization, the ultimate production of the human spirit. Find your baseline and grow every day. Till next time, advance. Make the rest of your day the best of your day.